overthinking it, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. This is the Overthinking It Book Club, and we are reading the comic book series Saga by Brian Vaughn and Fiona Staples. I am Ben Adams, your host. I am back. Uh, thank you to Matt for hosting last week. I was busy uh, escaping from a planet hatching into an alien super predator. Uh, this is the fourth, fourth episode of this book club, and we'll be discussing chapters uh, seven through nine. Uh, pardon me, seven chapters ten through twelve of the series. Uh, as I said, I'm Ben Adams, and we have a, a whole panel here tonight. Uh, first up in the alphabet, we have uh, Richard Rosenbaum. Hey, Richard. Hey, Ben. How's it going? You continue your unlikely streak of uh, being first in the alphabet despite having a R last name. So yeah, that, that's it's pretty weird. Uh, and next I'm... in the alphabet, uh, we have Ryan Sheely. Hello, hello. Good to be back. Hello, good to, good to have you on. Uh, next uh, in the S's, we have Jordan Stokes. Hey, Jordan. Never once have I been first in any alphabet. <laughs> <laughs> Someday, you can dream. Just You just have to get rid of me and Richard, and you will live the dream, Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, last, uh, but very much not least, we have Matt Rather. Hey, Matt. I was always last for everything until Leah Zonis joined my class in fourth or fifth grade, which was a great day for me. (laughs) (laughs) They never switched it up and started from the back of the alphabet. Well, yeah, you know, and they did it actually very self-consciously being a hippie school. But, uh, you know, (laughs) like, oh, we're alternative. We're going to start from the end of the alphabet. You, you know you're in a real progressive school if they had, like, a 26-sided die and they rolled it every time <laughs> to decide where in the alphabet to start. Right. Then absolutely. I'd be impressed. But uh, start but yeah. from the M's, you know. Yeah, exactly. Just to mix things up. But, uh, but welcome to all. We are, as I said, we are discussing chapters uh, 10 through 12. And as always, we will start with uh, a panel for the panel. Your, uh, since this is a visual medium, or at least the comic book is a visual medium, we'll be discussing our favorite panel uh, from this series of uh, chapters. So, uh, Richard, what's your panel for the panel? All right, my panel is, we've got, uh, in chapter 12, when uh, Prince Robot uh, goes to the planet to discover uh, the author and what's happening, you know, whether he's going to catch our family there, what's going on. And we get this very cute uh, otter kind of guy, and um, so Prince Robot you know, asks him which way to the author, and the guy goes, uh-oh, Mr. Heist don't like visitors, unless they're lady folk. Are you lady folk? And then we have this one panel of Prince Robot just glaring at this otter guy. And what's fascinating is Prince Robot doesn't have a face, but you can still tell the expression. Like, he's like, you can just look at him and like, no, I'm clearly not Ladyfoot. He's like, so, there's so much emotion and, you know, condescension mostly communicated in this, in this panel, even though he has literally no face, no expression, and yet somehow it's just so communicative and so funny, and I don't understand how Fiona, Fiona Staples managed to do this. But it's super impressive. Do you feel like maybe some of it is the way that the top line of his rectangle face is like sort of slightly bowed down? That that kind of becomes like the sort of the squinting. It has to be, right? Like he's a little bit. Yeah, he's a. It has to be the angle because we're looking up at him and he's like looking down. But it's not like. 
like he is he he is always this shape right like he's not a total he's not completely square like his lines are never uh totally straight they're always you know this kind of yeah he has that kind of slightly slightly rounded he has that cathode ray tube bulbousness to his face that's that's always that's always the case with him but in this one panel it's just you can just the condescension is dripping it's like don't you know who i am it's amazing and he has no there's nothing there there's no eyes like it's incredible i think you're totally right though i think part of it is contextual because if you look at that just by itself like that could be a shot of him from above and him looking up but we know that it's not because mm-hmm. we are putting – I think naturally as you're reading, you're putting yourself in the position of this awesome little otter farmer guy. <laughs> uh, and he would be looking up at Prince Robot. And so that's where I think you as a reader is putting yourself. And so when he, if he's looking down at you like that, it's easy to imagine that glare. Yeah. It would be so. interesting to run the, uh, run the Kuleshov effect experiment with this, right? Like put that drawing of Prince Robot next to three other panels and ask people to put themselves ge- like – um, in three-dimensional space with Prince Robot, where are you? And also in emotional space, like how does uh, Prince Robot feel about you or about mm. what he's looking at, right? Right. Like you, you, you do get the sense that Prince Robot is well-practiced at this glare, if for nothing <laughs> else, then his, his alligator butler is of similar stature to the, the farmer seal. So but I think he, he's got this glare down. <laughs> this is also after the, the like, uh, explicit... Uh, uh, multi-dick uh, uh, picture, right on the uh, on his face as he's wounded in battle in the flashback uh, to battle, and so I think that this like there is a little bit of like there's a little bit of like gay anxiety going on with him a little bit. Like, are you a lady? Do or that's the way of saying, hey, you don't like dudes, do you? You know, uh, and and it seems like he does. He he that that seems to touch off some sort of insecurity for him. He's like, no, I'm I'm a boy robot. <laughs> nice purple sash. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, how about you, Ryan? What's your uh, panel for the panel? So my panel is also in chapter twelve, but it actually comes right at the very very end, uh, and it's the uh, the page in the chapter uh, that has uh, the author is on the ground uh, and uh, and Prince Robot is seated. Um, and what's what I really like about this panel uh, is is a few things, but I specifically am drawn to the rug uh, in this panel, and the, and this rug that is a series of multicolored um, kind of pastel toned. Um, concentric circles. And I feel like there's something about this that feels like a lot of different things. It feels like it's like a a time portal, uh, but it also feels like that it is like um, ripples in a pond of a of, of a stone has been thrown in a kind of a psychedelic pond and it's rippling out. And I feel like that itself is an interesting metaphor for narrative and how narrative is working in um 
in in saga uh in in part because we learn on the very next page that uh that what what we've been seeing is a flash forward that we flash uh past part of the narrative uh and that the family the fugitive family is already there they've already been there for a week and so i find that this use of circle circles and circularity are really interesting especially because um it's a panel then um because the content the verbal content of the panel is then also talking about chapters and kind of uh, the order, the sequence of a book, and Prince Robot actually uh, quotes a line from uh, from the end of chapter twelve of Heist's book, uh, and so it's very cool of that there are two ends of chapter twelve that are happening simultaneously. Uh, so then, uh, uh, here of attention to kind of multiple timelines and how they you know both uh, overlap points of tangency and uh, diverge. Um, and then the final, I think, interesting thing in this panel is the sense of, of level, right? That you have uh, uh, Heist down low, Prince Robot seated above him, and then you see the stairs, which you then um, uh, in uh, three panels later and on the next page uh, reveals that up those stairs is where um, the, the whole family is hidden. So I feel like there's a lot of playing with um, both space and time that is really encapsulated uh, in this panel and it kind of encapsulates encapsulates a lot of what's going on in these chapters. There's also something great about kind of the social scene that's being set here because you have Prince Robot kind of sitting in this, you know, gentlemanly repose reading a book like he's settling in for a long haul, which is... What are you calling him effeminate? What what is that supposed to mean? (laughs) I would never, I would never deign to imply... But what's great is that this is – so it looks very polite. He's sitting in a chair in the middle of a room reading. But it's actually like not only is he in, in this guy's house, but I feel like there's something extraordinarily rude about reading somebody's book while they're sitting in the room with you. Right. Because it's like, oh, that's the most interesting thing I've ever done is like I'm not interesting enough to talk about. You can only read like my published work that's been edited. So I don't know what it is, but that's – well, obviously the fact that he just shot the guy. But there's just something <laughs> yeah. so – great in the tension between the politeness of the way he's sitting and the rudeness of what he's doing that, that I just, yeah, that robot is, that robot is throwing shade, major robot shade. Well, it's, it's it's a very British form of shade, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Another just little, uh, visual resonance is that whenever, uh, Prince robot goes into Jack Bauer mode, his, his, uh, CRT tube shows a vortex and the rug is kind of the same kind of Technicolor vortex as his face. I would love to see a yeah. season of 24 where Jack Bauer's face is replaced with a television screen showing what Jack Bauer is thinking about. <laughs> it, I mean, it would just be the clock, right? It would just be the the ticking <laughs> clock. It would be uh, 24 straight hours of beep, beep, boom. I think think by the end of the day, it would just be like a bathroom because presumably by the end of the day, he really has to go since he's gone 24 hours without, or at least based on the show, the fact that he never actually stops to use the bathroom. We don't have time to pee. All right. uh, Next up, we've got uh, Jordan Stokes. Hey, Jordan. So my panel for the panel is from uh, issue 11. It's in the flashback to, uh, to Marco's childhood where Barr is uh, teaching him to, like, to, to do awesome tricks on his grasshopper motorcycle or something like that. Um, the big panel where Marco is saying salty, which I guess is like jump in Esperanto or whatever. And what I love about this is kind of the, the geometric 
uh, composition of it. If you take Barr's horns and sort of draw an asymptotic tangent, a straight line, horizontal, uh, across the top curve of the horn, it'll clip just the top of Marco's salty and pretty much just the top of Marco's head. If you trace like the jawline of Barr, you will go to the grasshopper. If you trace his, uh, his right hand, which is coming up diagonally from the panel, you will go pretty much to the grasshopper. If you trace the line of the clouds in the background, you'll get a parallel diagonal line to the sort of ascending line of the grasshopper. And even if you sort of go outside of that into the panels surrounding it on the page, the one on the upper right and the one on the bottom left, it's all this one big diagonal swoosh, which makes the uh, the jump so much more powerful uh, than than it you know than it would be. You imagine the script that uh, that that Fiona Staples gets, right? It's like, and then Marco jumps the grasshopper. Uh, make this evocative of childhood innocence and <laughs> the things that we hope that our children can do that are more than we can do ourselves, because this guy just died, and it you know it just punches you in the gut. Yeah, and I, the, this is a great panel. I, I could. I was wondering in this scene, like, is this the wreath version of learning to ride a bike that you just like learned to ride a, gra- a flying grasshopper with a <laughs> sweet star on it? Because that's kind of the sense that that's kind of the emotional sense that I get that this is just kind of like a rite of passage in in, in childhood. There, you no, know, right, it's like getting on a grasshopper. You know, if you fall off the grasshopper, you got to get back on at the, you know, at the beginning. I mean, you never forget how to ride a grasshopper. Yeah, uh, <laughs> always comes back. I all I always uh, I I mean I I am wondering what the relationship uh, I, it's something that I wanted to bring up to talk about later but I I can just throw it up as an open question for the time being like what the function of this particular flashback is there are a couple of interesting structural things to say about it in terms of like the rules of the narrative that have been established but uh, but like what the relationship is I had sort of seen it as. Uh, I mean, I don't know. Jordan Jordan relates it to Barr. I sort of relate it to to. I sort of relate it to Marco. And to me, the the uh, the grasshopper is the rocket ship uh, in in the forest. When I say I relate it to Marco, I sort of see the primary thing being uh, being being sort of Marco's. Uh, 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 being important to Marco and like the the value of Barr in teaching him to uh, teaching him to like if at first you don't succeed try try again or that you can like withstand the the cuts and scrapes of uh, of life and you can get back on and and try something like that rather than it being about like a slightly bittersweet image uh, of Barr watching his his kid exceed him um, in height I guess uh, it's it's more for me a uh, bittersweet image of Marco wondering like well who will encourage me now or who yeah I mean, I think that that's totally what the whole flashback is about. But if you look at that one particular panel um, compared to the other things in the flashback, almost all of the rest of the flashback is from Marco's point of view, effectively. Like, either Marco is in the foreground and Barr is in the background, or you see Barr from Marco's point of view, like from below, etc., etc. Then with that panel in particular, it's Barr in the foreground. You're looking basically at the back of, uh, of Marco's head, right? So I think that that one is kind of the the focalization point shifts just for that panel and that's our, our last sort of chance to identify with bar before he uh, he exits the saga yeah 
well, sure, sort of, sort of good point. And he's surrounded kind of in all four other in all four of the smaller panels by Marco. So it's like you know, son, son, father, son, son. Yeah, uh, yeah, like a little hug. Yeah. <laughs> A little visual hug. I like that his ears point up when he's excited. <laughs> they perk up. What, don't yours? <laughs> I guess. <laughs> well, uh, Matt, how about you? What's your uh, your panel for the panel? So Jordan, Jordan said he had, a, uh, he had a bet as to what mine was. He was writing it down in a sealed envelope. I, and I hope to thwart him just to, just to alienate and confound my friends. Uh, which is something that you know I try to do. Uh, mine is from um, mine is from uh, uh, chapter ten, and it's in the first scene there uh, that begins with the that begins with the uh, the full bleed full page panel uh, for the ladies um, of of Marco standing there uh, shirtless holding the uh, holding the hammer in his hand saying please keep reading which is an injunction not just to Alana who's reading from Heist's book at the moment but also to the ladies uh, but uh, two, page, <laughs> two pages after that um, in uh, uh, I, so the next spread the far page uh, in the middle uh, the middle row uh, on the right uh, Alana looks looks at him and says okay now you're just reading too much into things. Um, and I, I, I like it for a couple of reasons. One, I think the expression on her face is, is very well rendered. And like, aside from the, it's, it's very like in both the, the like large scale details of, of composition and in the minute details of picturization, uh, like Fiona Staples really excels in this book, which is like, which is one of the great sort of fun things about reading it but also so that the scowl here is just like delightful to me uh and the way it's gone from uh from you know hey sexy flirty time conversation to okay come on buster and the fact that the dialogue is you know i think you're just overthinking it uh, that, uh, that I, I like that. Uh, I, I just sort of like that very much. Right. Like, is, is there some particular reason that that theme speaks to you, man? Uh, <laughs> I, and maybe it's just cause I've been on the receiving end of, of that exact look and that, uh, that exact quote so many times in my life. Um, but it is, it's also, it's fun that like, well, we can like, you know, the, you, you can interpret in so far, uh, uh, but the line must be drawn here, this far, no farther. And uh, you can't interpret beyond that. Well, Matt, you make a persuasive case, and I'll agree that is a great panel. But I think you'll find that your actual favorite panel <laughs> of the week is in uh, issue 12, about a quarter of the way through, in the party scene when Agent Gale calls up Prince Robot. In the background, what is it but the triumphant return of the alligator butler? Yes, I do. I do like, but I feel like it would be too predictable if I, uh, <laughs> if I just brought up the alligator butler every time he, uh, uh, every time he appeared. Um, so I guess that's uh, that's to me, right? Yes, and sir. It, to, it also would have been very predictable for me to have picked, picked the alligator butler, so I, I will not. Uh, so I think I have to go with the last, pa- very last panel of chapter twelve. This great shot of the uh, the whole family up the stairs, and I like it because there's so much going on. Like it really rewards looking at each and every character and kind of what they're doing and what their expression is. 
Uh, I think Alana in particular is the best because she she looks like I don't know kind of like a seventies like secret agent in like a you know B movie or something. Yeah, very very Mod Squad, right? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, like that's a great look. And but then yeah. behind her is this like alien with horns with a battle axe. And then immediately over her left shoulder is a ghost from the waist up with guts hanging down, but still having a 90s punk, punk vibe, um, which I, I just love the combination of those three. And then, of course, you also have Marco just kind of chilling in the back with this great kind of, um, you know, gender, normal gender role reversal of having, you know, the man cowering in the back with the baby, which is totally fine because that fits the characters as they've been built so far. But I, I just like how much is going on in this scene. Holding his holding his hand over Hazel's no. Hazel's mouth, yeah, yeah and right. looking at this, looking like with great trepidation, but I, but but also kind of like leaning into her ear as though to like soothe her by going shh shh, you know, um, what a great, uh, I mean, what a great sort of combination of things going on there. Yeah, I think it's it's kind of the the series in miniature, and that there's so many different themes all jumbled up together, and yet it, it all fits because of the the way the story has been told. So also, far. just looking at visually, looking at the focus, the way the perspective opens up to the right, the way everyone is looking off to the right and down, right, and the like the English language reading direction of like down and to the right. There's nothing there. There's right. like there's not only is there like a hiatus for the next issue, but there's an extra long hiatus uh, because they take a they they take a, uh, a super break every six issues to uh, stockpile more stuff, and that's when the trade paperbacks come out. Right. Yeah, at least, at least in my edition, all of their eyes are looking directly at the to-be-continued text on the following page. <laughs> right. Right. Although it is interesting, if you look, that Marco is actually looking up and to the right um, and is looking away from everyone else. And, uh, and, and that is yeah. Interesting. And I, I actually read it forward. I think I have a hypothesis about what he's looking at. But since we're not spoiling what's coming forward, I'll uh, have to remember to loop back to this panel when we get uh, near, nearer to the end, because I think I know what he's looking at. So this is I mean, this is an interesting panel for me because of what it says about the structure, right? Like this reveal and you do a reveal across a page, across a page turn uh, in a comic. Right. And there uh, there it is. And we're, we're already there for a week. But um, you have a you have a scene Right, that you think is going to be a scene that Hazel couldn't have possibly seen, uh, and uh, but it turns out it's not because they're already there, and we've just elided like between issues uh, eleven and twelve, I guess between chapters eleven and twelve. There's been uh, a passage of time during which uh, there was a week, uh, a week sort of ellipsis, and and you don't um, you don't know that until the very end, uh, or a week plus whatever the you know whatever the interstellar travel time is to get to quiet. Uh, the um, the planet where uh, Mr. Heist lives, and he, he so so this is like an interesting this is an interesting thing, and and with the the flashback as well, you know this is something that Hazel wasn't exactly there for. So we sort of dilate a little bit, like Marco's mind dilates and kind of takes over the narration from her because this is a, like a very personal uh, whatever the the set of associations is that leads to this uh, panel. It's very personal to him, and it has very much to do with what. 
what he's what is going on for him at the moment uh and it's very immediate almost almost more than it would be if he were recollecting this or telling the telling the story later right like unless he was i don't know unless he was virginia wolf or something it wouldn't be like and then like in this memory i'm telling you about there was a, a still deeper memory you know inception style uh when i was uh when i was a child um so the this is notionally being narrated by hazel and so the things that we see are and and she's not omniscient like she hasn't passed into the great beyond we know that she is you know corporeal enough to need a bookmark made from the the uh fabric of her of her baby armor suit you know um and that that uh that she's uh she's okay now in whatever time frame that the uh that the story is being narrated in um she's doing all she's doing all right at least has enough uh safety and freedom to uh to narrate the story to us but but um, but it's told in this kind of herky jerky way with a lot of flash forwards and flashbacks. This is how my parents met. The sort of thing that you would expect stories that you would expect your parents to tell you. You know, uh, I know the story of how my parents met in college, and like there's there's sort of mythology that grows that grows up around these things. Um, and then you know stories that you would not at all expect to hear from your parents, like the lurid details of their lovemaking, like more than just like yes, we you know you you. You were born, so you were conceived. Like it stands to reason, but more, uh, you know, more the kind of the the kind of explicit words and and uh, sexy Alana and uh, which I love, by the way, I love sexy <laughs> yeah. Alana. Right? Like, no, don't listen to her. She's um, <laughs> that 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 like it. We seem to be slipping out of uh, of uh, like a third like a uh, character narration. We seem to be slipping in and out of it, and also the kind of the fragment way the story is told with with memories flash forward flash back uh stuff like this in a fragmented way and i i I guess i just wanted to throw the question open to everyone like what do you what do you make of that do you make anything of it uh is there a larger structural point being made here about memory maybe or about like family stories and how they come together in these small pieces is it just all for suspense uh what's the uh what's the um What's the thing here? One thing that I would say is that to me, I don't feel like Hazel, like the Hazel written voice is actually narrating the story uh, in the narratological sense. I feel like the story is kind of unspooling. So there's a, uh, structurally, there must be another narrator, a great image maker uh, to channel Christian Metz, I guess. Um, and then Hazel seems to be like watching along with us and adding commentary. She's like the, the, the mystery science theater uh, robot or something like that. Uh-huh. Um, or, or she's flipping through an old family photo album and writing marginal notes or something like that. Um, that doesn't answer your question about what it all means at all, but that, that's sort of the structural role that I see her uh, beginning to take, uh, that, that, that part of her character. Yeah, it's, I mean, yeah, the, sorry, uh, the, um, the scrawling on top and not having those words contained in some sort of like area in the page and some sort of like narration uh, box is uh, an interesting technique. Yeah, see, I, I, I think, almost, I, I've been keeping like almost a third theory, but I think based partially on the, the scrawling. Like, I, I kind of think of this as being, uh, you know, how some TV shows have as a narrative device where there's narration, but it's like it's somebody writing in their diary, and like they're not really talking about necessarily 
what happened in that particular episode. Like, they're not writing word for word what was shown in that episode, but it's always, like, thematically connected to what's happening. Oh, that's so, interesting. Like, so, so there, I, there's, I've like... I've seen it almost as, like, this is, like, a separate document that's being written. Yeah. And we're getting... Somebody took that and, like, used it as annotation for the events that are being shown in the book. That, that's at least how kind of I've been interpreting it. So there's a quality that's like a collage or a kind of palimpsest. It's a, like a, a, a bricolage of, of kind of documentary, uh, documentary pieces. You know, that's horrifying, though, because that means that in her diary, she writes, so yeah, my parents used to have sex, and some <laughs> monster took that and spliced it together with actual footage of her parents <laughs> doing it. <laughs> I, well, it's it's I, not even that because I think the narration that's actually over that panel isn't necess- isn't even explicitly about sex. It's something like, "Oh yeah, it is." Well, it's my, like your parents just willed you into this, and that's all there is. And then, as you said, some monster basically adds like porn. <laughs> uh, I think another way of of viewing it, and it's, that is in line with some of these, is that is viewing Hazel as the author or embellisher of her own story, right? So that she's gotten fragments of these um, from, from her parents and from, uh, but, but, you know, we're, we're also seeing whole plot lines that her parents aren't privy to really, right? The, the whole plot line with the will and the goings on, uh, on, on landfall and, and, and all of that, that, you know, that there is another possibility is that after, that's even in uh, even more so than it being kind of sp- this being a splice up of the story and uh, and a journal that this is kind of a um, imagining of, of her life story right and so and and so kind of um, yeah so she may not know all of these things um, but she's engaging in an act of of kind of personal myth making and family myth making uh, and 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 kind of telling that story and filling in the gaps. That's interesting. It would it would explain some of the more surreal aspects of the uh, the world building and character design, right? Like, so one of the people that was hunting us was a guy named Prince Robot the Fourth. Prince Robot the Fourth. I always just sort of imagined him as a man with a TV for a head. Ha! Right. I always just imagined that all the butlers were alligators. <laughs> I always wanted an alligator butler, and so you know, in my story, all the butlers are alligators. So does this open up the possibility that really the the universe is only populated with humans and all of the crazy creatures are just embellishments on of of the author's imagination? I don't know. Wings wings and horns seem to be pretty uh pretty fundamental to yeah. the storytelling, right? Right. Well, and, and some of the people with wings can actually fly and like that is important for the story to be told that they can fly from one place to another. So yeah, that's a little hard to uh to just embellish. This is the kind of thing where once you begin to go down that rabbit hole, like there's no coming back up. So maybe we'd better step back from the edge. <laughs> that's, that's well, a good it is idea. interesting. No, I just want to do uh, draw the attention to another um, uh, an interchange between Heist and uh, Prince Robot uh, in chapter. I think it's chapter twelve, uh, where uh, Heist, where Prince Robot is interrogated. Irrigating it was kind of in the slower burn uh, and says, well, you know, I assumed that your intent was to do nothing, uh, you know, have no plot and have that be a statement. Uh, and Heist raises 
raises his glass and says, well, you know what they say, that the reader is the final collaborator. Cheers for doing the heavy lifting, right? And so I think that that kind of point, I mean, it's an interesting counterpoint to uh, Matt's uh, selected panel about, I I think you're reading too much into it, uh, that uh, this kind of active interpretation and the act of kind of making the meaning uh, is an act of collaboration between the author and the reader. That's interesting. You know, this has been all over this particular little stretch of issues in a way that it really wasn't over all of the others. That uh, you have those two, you have the please keep reading beefcake moment. Mm -hmm. You have Mm -hmm. the these days I used it as a bookmark at kind of the end of one of the big plot Mm -hmm. arcs. I think that's the only issue end that hasn't been a cliffhanger so far is these days I use it as a bookmark. Kind of like, all right, you've been reading long enough. Pause here. Take a breath. And then they go and meet the author. And although the author is not dead, he's been shot in the knee. Yeah, that's not. Yeah, that was the the first draft of of uh, Roland Barthes, you know, seminal work on this subject. <laughs> <laughs> the author is shot in the knee, and it just did not sound uh, as good in French as uh, as the author is dead. You know, though, it might be actually a more tenable position, because when you say the author is dead to people, everyone's like, well, no, that's ridiculous. You can talk about authorial intention. But to say that the author is, like, hamstrung somehow, uh, they can still have some kind of agency, but as the reader, you can run circles around them because you've kneecapped them. It kind of works better, actually. <laughs> <laughs> actually, the, the panel that we mentioned is actually kind of a great analogy. Is like, if you want the author, he's there in the corner, like, shot in the knee and enfeebled, and maybe you can ask him some questions, but for the most part, like you're alone in your chair reading the book. I mean, this is, I, I think the choice of the word collaborator, right, is interesting here because it's sort of like a wartime collaborator in yeah. terms of like being on the wrong side and like sort of ensuring, ensuring your survival by doing something that, that turns out to be illicit or, uh, you know, morally questionable. Um, and that, 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 that is the relationship between, uh, author and reader. I mean, that is the, uh, the that it's something illicit and morally questionable. Uh, that is go- interesting. Uh, I was just going to say, like, right, yeah. Go ahead, like, go ahead, Richard. Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, in the sense of that, you know, sort of collaborating with, with, uh, with the reader in storytelling. If you just go back a few, a couple of pages, um, you know, right, kind of right before this scene uh, where Prince Robot meets the author, um, just sort of in between, and like in the interstice between his dream. And and that scene, um, when we pull out and realize that that this is a, a a dream, a flashback that you know it's a it's a memory of his because we can see it on his face on his screen. We see um, Prince Robot drenched in the blood of that poor exploded mouse doctor, and like it occurs to me that that can't be part of his actual memory right because he wouldn't have seen himself that way obviously because he was you know looking out from inside of himself rather than at himself drenched in blood but that is a lot of the time the way that we um see ourselves in dreams or in or when we're remembering things we actually don't necessarily see it out of our own eyes right but we can sometimes see it uh, see ourselves in it. 
Yeah, especially if we've seen photographs of it or been had the story told to us by a third party. Right. You can like confabulate the memory of yourself in a third person perspective. Yeah, exactly. So I think that 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 um that ties in pretty well with now he's he's meeting the author and they're having this argument actually about the meaning of the thing that the guy wrote. You know, it also occurs to me that um, in this case, the collaborator thing is particularly apt because what the guy has written is, at least from the point of view of Prince Robot, it seems to be a, a treasonous act to have written this thing. Right. Um, it's a little bit unclear, like whether this guy is living in landfall territory and what their censorship laws are like. But to Prince Robot, uh, writing this pacifist tract is something that you could maybe get put up against the wall and shot for. Right. Maybe yeah, it's, it's very a little Soviet, bit unclear. sort of. Yeah, um, and we don't know whether this is within the within the boundaries of the law or whether he's kind of uh, gone gone Jack Bauer again for a minute. But at any rate, like this is a serious book to have written. And it's a dangerous book to have written. And uh, the, the concept of authorship, actually, as it emerges historically, has a lot to do with legal responsibility for your work, both in the sense that, uh, well, it's yours, therefore you get paid for it to a certain degree, but also you did it, you can be arrested for it if the censors like, look at it the wrong way. And it's worth noting just that that's an interest that that's an important distinction in like First Amendment law that actually historically protections for speech after the fact have been relatively light that uh, only very recently have we applied a lot of protection for speech that you make like that there was very much a, once you say it, you're responsible for the consequences. The only real protection was we can't prevent you from saying it beforehand, but after you've said it and we know what you said, then we can you know shoot you in the knee if it's if we think it's treasonous. Huh, that's or really more, interesting. Or more likely level civil, levy civil fines, but, you know, potato, potato. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. It would be less, uh, less compelling as a visual story if Prince Robot had, like, uh, revved up his arm cannon and, like, given the guy a citation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would be less, or a, or a summons for a, uh, for a trial. <laughs> yeah, go ahead and stab me in the neck or else my next summons will broaden your mind. <laughs> Yeah, I mean it's interesting because like the book, the uh, oh, what is it? We get a, a clo- we get a close up of what it's called. Something in smoke, an so- evening smoke. Oh. <laughs> an evening smoke uh, is. Um- you know, it it the the meaning of it is very deeply veiled, right? So it like it it relies on interpretation. It relies on the collaboration uh, of the reader to to give its its anti war message. Um, and it's so someone else could interpret it a very different way, right? Because like all this stuff is subjective and has to do with like the the state of the reader and the kind of the proclivities of the reader and also the history of the reader. So uh, the inter- interpretation can go in in a number of uh, a number of directions. So it requires the treason requires that the person already be guilty, right? Like you can only see the treason of an evening smoke if uh, if you are already a collaborator yourself. Right, right. Sort of like you can only see like a cloud that looks like a penis if you already have a dirty mind. Wait, uh, wait, uh, penis? What? Uh, wait, uh, ro- robot, gay robot porn? This is actually the the panel, the the big splash at the beginning, and then the second panel on the page, uh, which is the uh, the multi member. Um, 
uh, screen image is why this initially uh, this book was not um, this chapter was not available for download in the Apple Store uh, in the uh, Apple uh, Comicsology app back when you could download uh, buy comics issues before Comicsology was acquired by Amazon and uh, I think out of an abundance of caution they interpreted Apple's. Uh, this they interpreted apple's um guidelines as precluding them from putting this uh putting this image into the apple store and kind of selling it which which uh the internet predictably freaked out about uh because of the way that the previous chapter had started and the the you know the the sort of outrage was you know well okay all this explicit uh, i mean explicit uh heterosexual sex is okay but homosexual sex is not and it's not quite the same you don't see you know you don't see um, uh, you don't see g- uh, genitals in the same way in uh, chapter eleven, but you do on sextillion, and so you know there was there was uh, outrage, and eventually uh, Apple clarified that this would not violate its uh, terms for content, and, and the issue was put into the uh, uh, was put into the app store. But like it was, there was a big brouhaha around uh, these two panels when they uh, when they came out uh, online. Um, See that that's really interesting because here we have you know the the book inside the book here the uh, the the steamy romance novel you know if we do assume that it was written as deliberate political propaganda then the the reason it's a steamy romance novel is to get past censors because in in this world where like politics is everything and war and violence is everything like you use smut in order to get past the censors but apparently in our world, smut is how what the, what the only thing the censors are looking for. So you need to dress your smut up in something else. Whereas here, he needs to dress his political allegory up in smut in order to get it past the censors. Whereas here, you would have to like write a political treatise that is very, very, very carefully veiled pornography, I guess. Yes. <laughs> hey, I have a question. What does it mean... Alana and Marco are both like, wow, you're the only other person in the world who gets this book. We must be soulmates. What does it mean that Prince Robot immediately gets it? And not only, not only does he like crack the code and use it to solve the crime, when he first is reading the novel, he's taken enough with it that he wants to tell his wife about it. Yeah, it, well, right, and and uh, maybe they're maybe they're soulmates, or maybe they're not. I mean, maybe they're not soulmates. I think I think you have to. I don't know. I think that there's something like an and Oswald. Uh uh Heist talks about uh his son dying in war. And I think there's something um about like uh about having experienced trauma directly and being able to kind of think about it uh in a particular way. Um you know, and think about this sort of awful waste of the war beyond the kind of jingoistic nationalism uh, that you know that everyone seems to make such a big show of of pretending like they care about. Uh, you have to be able to see the. Um, you have to be. You have to have been affected uh, by the war and be able to kind of see through that in order to kind of unlock. It's like an achievement that's unlocked, except the achievement is like horrible trauma. I think the another another possible way of reading it uh, is that uh, all of the people that are getting this book uh, are or are about to be parents have kind of parenting on the mind, uh, and so that there's also like this kind of connection of like what kind of world are we like leaving to our children and kind of thinking beyond oneself. Uh, 
uh, and kind of c- connecting the horror of war to the world that you're building for your children. Um, so, you know, the uh, Prince Robot knows that he's going to be uh, a, a robot dad uh, and um, and and Marco and uh, and and Alana are. At least there, there's the glimmer in their eye, even as they're reading the book. Like the idea is is starting to form, uh, for, form, and uh, heist, of course, is a is a parent as well. So that there's like that thread is another way to kind of think about them all as uh, connecting on the the meaning of the book. Uh, I just wanted to put quickly about you know the meaning of the book and the and the author uh, getting shot in the knee. Um, I might be reading a little too much into this, but um, the bookshelves that we see in the background in this scene, um, the bookshelves and the books are completely um, unoutlined, right? It gives us the impression of, yeah, this is just background stuff rather than the foreground that's, that's very sharply drawn out, but we do see... Like the uh, the globe that's on the bookshelf is outlined, right? And it, I, I, and and the books themselves look kind of you know melty, and they 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 blend into each other. They blend into the the shelf and all. These. You know what they look like? They look like the concentric circles on the rug that has yeah. the chair in the middle of it that, yeah. that Prince Robot sits on. Yeah. So. All of this while they're discussing, you know, the meaning, arguing about the meaning of this, of this book. Yeah, there's a sense in which it's very, I mean, there's a sense in which it's very much open to interpretation, right? Yeah. There's a sense, and that's, this is the, like, the visual representation of that. Oh, that's yeah, cool. I, I had never noticed that. No, I just noticed it, you know, as I was looking through the scene right now. It's really interesting. Let me just add on, because I think one important thing that that's going on narratively here is that, you know, it's sh- the fact that Prince Robot is also getting into this book is we're, we're kind of like seeing his value as the reason he's a threat. Like the will is a threat because, you know, he's just this apparently this physical force. Whereas here we're getting the sense that Prince Robot is a threat because he can think like the prey. You know, he, he's the guy you bring in because he thinks like a rebel so he can catch a rebel. Um, but he's still because he's part of the you know, no, uh, the nobility, he can he's still part of polite society. Uh, you know, it's acceptable for him to read this, you know, somewhat subversive literature because they know they've got him kind of through another means, through through the control mechanisms of the aristocracy. You could also imagine a future point at which Prince Robot has gone far enough down the rabbit hole that he joins the side of the angels. But right at this moment, the fact that he is slightly corrupted makes him very dangerous. Well, let me move on to, I think, the next topic we wanted, and I think it's related, uh, is uh, um, kind of the the different reveals in the book. We, we've touched on it a little bit, but just kind of how this medium does, reveals vital uh, details of the story. Because we have a couple big ones here. We have, at the end of chapter 10, we have Lion Cat drifting in, the, the, in space, possibly never to be seen again. Uh, and then it takes, you know, a few panels into the next chapter before we reveal what happens to Lion Cat. Uh, and then, of course, the you know my favorite panel, the last one of Chapter Twelve, is a big reveal uh, that to me is is also my Downton Abbey moment of this uh, uh, particular chapter. If you're if you're not familiar with our TV club, we, we talk about the, the show Downton Abbey, but because it reminds me of dramas where there's somebody listening at the door, and there's always two ways to tell that story. You can show the person listening at the door, and then show the conversation on the other on the other side. 
And there you get this kind of frisson of knowing something that the people on screen don't. That every word they're saying, you know that there's a third person listening in on it. Or you can do what it does here and show the conversation and only then pan the camera to the other side of the door to show the person listening. And with, a, with this medium, you can do it either way. And I think the, you know, Fiona Staples and Brian Vaughn deploy that tool in, in, bo- in both ways at, at different times. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on just kind of reveals in general in, in, in these chapters and in Saga. I mean, for that reveal to work, uh, there are some things that are sort of assumed on the part of the reader, right? That you're going to read the pages in order from left to right, uh, that you're going to read the text at the same time as you look at the images. You're not going to kind of like flip through, uh, see all the pictures, and then go back and figure out what people are talking about. That you are going to assume that time is passing between each panel, right? This is all very basic stuff. I mean, I don't know that we need to, to dwell on the effects of all of those assumptions. So, we're go- so in other words, we're going to assume all the things that Saga's narrative kind of gives the lie to in terms of how memory works uh, and how stories actually unfold organically. I mean, I don't know that it gives the lie to them exactly, right? Uh, because rather it kind of capitalizes on them, right? To um, to create various emotional effects upon us. Um, because it's not as if people don't read from left to right uh, and have time go forward in their stories as they go. If that wasn't the case, then they couldn't get any effect by messing with us somehow, right? But definitely, like, uh, I think that these these people have thought very hard about the way that people read comics and are kind of getting a lot of mileage out of those assumptions and undercutting those assumptions. Yeah, but I do think that the reveals actually, and I, I could be wrong. I mean, I guess the the reveal at the end of chapter twelve is one that starts playing with the expectations of of uh, of of which way time is moving and and the linearity of time. But even then, that immediately follows what was coming before. It's just that they actually reveal something about where this chapter is in the narrative. Um, so it's again, it's kind of keeping with the patterns and assumptions to break them. Um, but in some ways, the more and more kind of killer the reveals are. And they're either kind of, there are two main kinds of reveals. Uh, maybe there are more, but there's two that I noticed. One are the kind of cliffhanger reveals uh, that end the chapters. And then the other ones that often um, come in the middle of chapters uh, and, and are revealing the scope and enormity and kind of whether it's horror or surprise of some element that's being seen for the first time. And I think one of the really uh, big ones uh, in in this uh, set of chapters is the reveal uh, in chapter 10 of the of the giant evil space fetus, uh, uh, which is, I believe, uh, how it's how it's described. Right. And, and uh, it's you're going from uh, Barr saying, what in the world? And you turn the page and it's just the egg cracking open and the, the three glowing eyes and the tiny, tiny ship with the speech bubble that says exactly. Um, and, and I think that there's, you know, we had identified several uh, other of those on earlier uh, podcasts of uh, these other kind of big splash pages, the, these little two, two page full bleed spreads that reveal some element uh, some new element of the world. I mean, just narratively, there there are a couple of interesting things going on, right? It goes two ways. One is that it has to do with... Um uh, it, it has to do with like a build up to a climax, and you know the climax is coming, right? Like here it comes, here it comes, 
boom, right? And then the other is a surprising accent, uh, something that you're something that you're not expecting, because like a reveal is like should be a surprise by nature. And so there's there's a I, I guess we should just consult Aristotle about this. But there's a there's a dialectic between inevitability or like a rising tension or a promise of of some sort of gratification, and then a sort of out of left field component, a, a, like a surprise component. And I didn't see that coming or. Or, uh, that rhythm, like there's kind of a syncopation in the rhythm that sort of uh, that sort of brings you up short and actually makes you recognize the rhythm. Like syncopation makes you feel the actual rhythm uh, by being, um, you know, uh, by being being off off from it. So it's not. I mean, I don't know what what in what sense these are in what sense these are reveals. I guess because they you turn the page and a new image is revealed. I guess because new information uh, is revealed. Um, but uh but there there's a kind of typology of them in which like there are the ones that are promised uh and the ones that that sort of take you aback yeah maybe you could talk about the difference between a reveal and an unveiling yeah that like mm-hmm. the uh yeah. the yeah. the giant space fetus is an unveiling whereas uh the family already being on quietus is a reveal yeah and the 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 issue the difference is one of expectations right like much harder to do an unveiling well than to do a reveal well right like or to do uh, to do a surprise reveal well um uh, much harder to uh to meet expectations once you've established right. that they're going to be high than to just kind of uh uh give people something that they that there was no expectation for to begin with well, let, let me Wait, ask this then. Always pers- a, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go let ahead, me ask man. this as a test of, the, of this discussion. The, the last panel of chapter of chapter nine, uh, um, just before we get started with this, where it's revealed that Lion Cat is missing. Is that a reveal or is that a unveiling? You mean chapter you know, was, chapter ten or? Oh, sorry. Yes, to chapter ten. Yeah, the end of chapter ten. Right, right, right. Uh, where, where Lion Cat is drifting in space? Because I, I think there's a case to be made either that it's a reveal or an unveiling. And I'm just curious to hear, hear, hear our theories of, of which one it is. So I would say that that one is a, an unveiling on a small scale, because when Hazel's narration kicks in about collateral damage, you're like, oh, someone's going to die. Someone's going to be killed by this. So I wonder if it'll be like, is it going to be Gwendolyn? She seems like she's the newest character. It would kind of make sense for her to die. She is the one who's in like the ex-girlfriend, and we're talking about the end of romantic relationships metaphorically. And then uh, you're kind of building up that expectation, and then it turns out to be Lying Cat, right? Uh, also, are arguably a reveal in that I don't think anyone was expecting it to be Lying Cat, and the the collective reaction of everybody was not Lying Cat. <laughs> yeah, because Lying Cat is the best. Uh, Lying Cat is like an imaginative triumph of this uh, of this work. Like it's mm-hmm. the Lying Cat is just freaking amazing, and and was like the I, first. I felt nothing when I saw that happen to Lying Cat. Lying. Lying. <laughs> <laughs> the great thing about Lion Cat is that it's like somebody like drew a storytelling challenge out of a deck that said, make Chewbacca, but more awesome. And they actually <laughs> stuck the land. <laughs> <laughs> right. You, raise the, you establish those expectations and you meet them. That's a very hard thing to do. Yeah. Um, yeah the the promise the the promise that someone is going to be someone is going to be killed it's also it's also a misdirect right uh because the person who's actually going to die is bar 
you know, uh, in the next book. And, um, and actually, that is like you can think of of like uh, issue twelve as being a coda on this second uh, six chapter volume uh, because we actually don't see our characters until the very end. You know, it's one of those annoying things that you get in a television series when you want to know what the hell happened to Walter White, and you get some like cutaway to Mexico or something like that. Yeah, uh, it, that also speaks to um, the idea that these uh, that Hazel's comments are kind of not necessarily about the things that that are going on uh, on the page, right? Because Barr is the one who dies. Bar is, you know, sort of the collateral damage because it turns out that, you know, thank God Lion Cat is okay. But uh, her commentary is superimposed over this scene rather than that one. Um, well, let me, let me use this as a jumping off point to talk about our, our last theme because there's both a lot of death here, or at least important deaths, and we also get that juxtaposed with images of birth and babies of all different sorts. So we we want to throw that out and and see how how those connections are treated in these chapters. I I think that, I mean, uh, I think that what is really interesting is like, even though uh, in, uh, in dialogue as the giant evil space fetus, uh, the will identifies that the, the, the hatched creature is, is called a time suck. And I thought that was just like a, a fascinating way to describe babies in general. <laughs> um, uh, and, and kind of this, you know, the, the, the status of kind of shifting from being a parent to being a not parent. Uh, and, and, and I thought that that was like, uh, a, and, and so just this idea of the, this being um a birth that then uh has a side effect a lot of in this case like actual destruction uh and and actual like kind of being like a gravitational pull of sucking things into its orbit uh i thought to be a really interesting given the like larger themes um i'm afraid we just might have lost ryan in this stretch of uh, chapters, <laughs> that was kind of that was pretty other. appropriate, actually. Yeah, that was it's pretty- pulling him back in. <laughs> we lost. There was, a, there was a, few, a few panel break where there was some suspense as to whether or not we were going to pull. Right oh back. my god! Let me sorry. Let me get my lance out and and drag us back into the drag us back into the spacecraft. <laughs> But yeah, there's lots of interesting stuff that's going on with that. If you want to go full allegory with it, uh, think about never what go they, full allegory. <laughs> think about what they have to get rid of to escape the the time suck. Right? Is they have to sacrifice the crash helms. Now, there's good narrative reasons to do that. The crash helms are far too useful for our characters to have them. But it's like think of the crash helms as a a symbol for being unattached. Right. Uh, that's what it's like to be in your 20s, uh, you know, and single and living in Manhattan and living the full entourage sex in the city lifestyle, whichever you choose. Right. Um, when you have a baby, you have to throw those things on the fire. Is that what ha- that would happen when you when you became a father? You had your uh, I mean, I mean, babies, babies being a time suck in that they like uh, they mean you can't uh, date supermodels anymore. 
Yeah, I mean, and that's, of course, I'm being cavalier, right? But th there is a, like, a large amount of possibility in your day-to-day -day life that you have to get rid of. Not so much that, like, your life could go a whole different way, and it's like, oh, I could backpack across Europe and, like, and date Heidi Klum or something like that, because that was never happening. But, like... Well, a baby will fit in the backpack. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Heidi Klum likes babies, possibly. But uh, more that, like, uh, you get up in the morning and it's like, I could go get a bagel right now. I could go for a jog right now. Well, well the jog thing was also never happening, but the bagel could have. <laughs> and when, when you've got the baby, it's not necessarily an option because you you're sort of tethered to the baby, like for the first couple of years, right, at least. Well, and purely from a packing perspective, like pre-baby, if you want to go somewhere and you have a helmet and you have, all you have is a helmet, you're fine. Like, just take that, get on an airplane, and you can go wherever you want to go. But when you have a baby, you need a whole tree. You need to take the tree, <laughs> and you take all the stuff, and that's what you need to get the baby around. I wonder if there's uh, something to be made of the fact that Marco is not wearing a helmet when he's learning to ride his grasshopper. <laughs> <laughs> well, apparently the only helmets they own are priceless family heirlooms. So, <laughs> <laughs> Sure. Well, no, these aren't heirlooms. They sold the house for these, right? Yeah. Oh, it's that's like, right. It's like uh, your parents show up, like you've gotten into some kind of trouble, and your parents show up on these two, like, awesome, tricked-out Harley-Davidson uh, motorcycles. And they're like, yeah, we sold the house to buy these. <laughs> Well, one, one thing about death that I found interesting was the, this last line that we've already touched on, but the bit about how the, kind of the one thing that Hazel has left of her grandfather is that she uses a bookmark, uh, which I found to be a very kind of poignant statement about, and I think it's meant to be, there's this beautiful panel of going off into the distance, uh, but there's so many different things that you could say that is the last thing that you use of, you know, a, a loved one that's passed on. But as a bookmark, I like the imagery of it both being something that kind of follows you as you're going, but also like keeps you keeps you remembering where you were. And that there's something very apropos about that as being a, a device of remembering both where you are in your book and where you're, uh, uh, you know, remembering your loved one. So I, I really like that imagery. Yeah, yeah, it's cool because a bookmark fixes you in time, right? It, like it, it halts the progress of the story in time, and then you flip back to where the bookmark is. It's almost like you are rewinding your own life to the point when you were reading the book, and like it, that temporality of reading time takes over again. You know, um, in an odd way, you can think of all the time you spend reading a book over the course of many days as one continuous stretch of time that is separate from the other parts of your life. I mean, it's uh, and it's interesting, like the connection to space, like it fixes you in time by fixing you in space, uh, right? Like in the space of the uh, in in the space of the the book, uh, which is uh, more highlighted in you know sequential art, uh, where the relationship of the panels in space is very important. I mean, it is interesting in thinking about kind of closing the loop with this, with what we were talking about with respect to. The <laughs> oh, yeah, it's a shame. It's a shame. Whatever the interpretive it, act of reading and the relation, whatever it was, was lost in time it. and lost in space. Uh, Ryan, I'm sorry, your connection might not be good enough to get your point out. It was never meant to be. Or it's just a cliffhanger. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, we'll pick up we'll pick up with exactly what Ryan was saying next time. Can we all just stare off to the right to uh to see his brilliant speech bubble over there? <laughs> Please all readers now look down to the right. Thank you. <laughs> so thanks guys. This this has been a great panel. I think we will drop our bookmark here. Uh <laughs> we will be back next week talking about chapters uh 13 through 15. Uh thank you to the panel. Uh, if you're if anybody is interested in more, we can be found on the web at I might be reading too much into this dot com. No, no, wait, that's not right. Uh, visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, the place where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't. It probably deserve. doesn't deserve. Garble, 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 garble. <laughs> <laughs>